0: I'm starting to get excited again about the third opportunity Linda and I will have to travel to Israel next fall. And it's not just the historical and biblical sites that I enjoy, but it's also seeing modern Israel. When Israel declared its independence in 1948 and was recognized by the United Nations, it was a dream as old as Ezekiel. So many unlikely to impossible factors had to converge in order for Israel to become a nation. These include some tragic stories, uh, the Russian pogrom or persecution of the Jews in the early 20th century that sent a, a mass migration over the United States. If the United States had not been Israel's best friend for the last century, this probably wouldn't have happened. Then there was the Holocaust, it had to happen, and it created the kind of sympathy after World War II that enabled Israel to rise again. The fact that the Turks had neglected Palestine for about 200 years, both the land and the people, uh, created a vacuum there in that piece of property that allowed the, the Jews to go home. Franklin D. Roosevelt had to die because Harry Truman was the U.S. president who was most passionate about Israel, Winston Churchill had to lose an election and be replaced during right after World War II when he was sort of a heroic figure. So all these factors had to come together and it's astounding what Israel has become. And I am certainly aware there is a lot of controversy in that part of the world and in that nation even today, but what Israel has accomplished in 70 years is nothing short of remarkable. Some of the world leaders in uh, technology, a lot of your your uh, your technology that you use originated somewhere in Israel. Uh, economy, uh, they have more per capita college graduates than anybody in the world, a 97% literacy rate. Uh, their agriculture is astounding. They produce about 93% of their own food in a place that when you drive around, you wouldn't really realize there was enough possibility there. One of their ingenious ideas is they actually Farm fish in the desert. Don't ask me how, just read about it. So like, how do you do that? So Israel has been amazing in its rebound, and for some people at least, it is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37, that dry bones passage that we read just a few moments ago. So there's no shortage of those who see modern Israel as a miracle, and no shortage of those who connect it when you read about the revival of national Israel 3,500 years later, uh, 2,500 years later after Ezekiel's prophecy, who connect it right to chapter 37 and the valley of dry bones. So let's take a moment and look at that scripture. Today we're going to actually take the step to put the verses up on the screen. Go ahead to the next slide. Um, and we're gonna uh, as we do you if you prefer your own Bible or the pew Bible you're welcome to do that but I think it might be helpful because I just want you to, to again grasp in your own mind a visual of what's happening here in chapter 37 beginning with verse 1 so in verse 1 the Ezekiel the priest prophet has had multiple experiences of teleportation so when when the Spirit of the Lord lifts him up and takes him somewhere it's not necessarily gonna be good news Uh, One previous time was when he took him back to Jerusalem and he saw the abominations, the idolatry that was there. And the glory of God left the temple in an earlier occasion. Also, it's not necessarily good to be put in the midst of a valley. I don't know how you conceive of a valley, but for ancient people... The mountains were the place where you drew close to God. Their temples were built on mountains. Their homes were built on mountains because valleys were places of flood. So you might grow your crops there, but it wasn't necessarily a place of uh, peace that you and I might conceive. So Ezekiel gets there, and he sees a valley of dry bones, and I just want you to pause there for a moment because in addition to being a prophet, he has been trained as a priest, and a priest would be defiled and actually you know, not able to continue his professional duties if he ever had contact with a dead body. So all of this is making Ezekiel unclean and unfit as he approaches this valley of dry bones, verse 2. I would be surprised if anyone in this room has come across a full human skeleton, and outside on the patio doesn't count, all right, because that's not actually human, it was just, it's an artistic rendition there, but Uh, these days if you were to approach a skeleton or even what you knew were human bones you would immediately call the authorities because we don't leave bodies lying around to uh, just uh, you know turn to dust and so you would begin asking like why were these bodies there and when Ezekiel sees this valley of dry bones it's the same question for us why were they there and we don't know it is a vision as we'll see in a moment But perhaps it would remind Ezekiel of a battlefield where one side lost, or maybe there was such destruction that bodies were left on both sides for years, maybe decades. But it would have been a terrifying experience to actually encounter an entire field full of bones that have been there so long that they are described as dry. Verse 3. So notice the question of the Lord is not can bones live? It's can these bones live? So, Ezekiel, I've taken you on a tour of this field of bones. Do you think these bones can live? Ezekiel is very wise. I love his answer because he says, you're the one who knows this, Lord. And he calls him the sovereign Lord. That's the combination of Elohim and Yahweh. We've encountered this throughout uh, the book of Ezekiel in the Bible. He's a personal God. He's a powerful God. So he says, you're personal. You're powerful. You know whether these bones can live. Verse 4. Now Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the bones. Now, come on. Okay, so Ezekiel has been told to prophesy to the people in Babylon. He's uh, been told to prophesy against Jerusalem. He's been told to prophesy against other prophets. He's been told to prophesy against mountains and forests. He's also been told to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now he's told, he's brought to a field of dry bones and told to prophesy to the dry bones. I don't know about you, but if I were there, I'd go like, I'm glad nobody else is around, because I'm gonna look like an idiot here for the next few minutes, talking to a bunch of bones that are so dry, a valley full of dry bones. But the word of the Lord is what he is told to to speak to these dry bones. Verse five, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So, the purpose of all this is so that, verse 6, they will know that I am the Lord. But first, Ezekiel needs to know it. So, he speaks to Ezekiel and says, I want you to know that I am the Lord. This certainly has to stretch the faith of Ezekiel. It's one thing to predict death, which he's been doing all through the book, right? Preach that these people are living. They're going to die. It's quite another thing even for Ezekiel to preach that bones that have been dead will come to life. And that's exactly what God asks him to do. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise. So let this scene sink in. This is what inspired the, uh, the piece that the choir just sang and Dr. Peter arranged for us. But notice that Ezekiel hears something before he sees anything. So I don't know how you've pictured this scene before, but that was kind of a new wrinkle to me. So I don't know if he's looking off in the distance or he's closed his eyes because of what's in front of me, uh, because of what's in front of him, but he actually hears a noise, a rattling sound, as the bones come together, bone to bone. So the bones were not full skeletons. They were scattered parts of bones that Ezekiel had seen, and now they are reattaching themselves into full skeletons, but they're still skeletons, verse 8 I looked so now he opens his eyes and examines what's happening in front of him and as he opens his eyes uh, tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them so remember they're still lying down though so don't picture that all of a sudden they're standing up some of the artist depictions of the scene showed skeletons you know running around or whatever no they're still on the ground They're not getting up anywhere. They're just covered now with flesh. So they look like corpses now instead of skeletons, but they are still lifeless. And then verse 9, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. Now, this is the most important part of the text. So I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word, all right? And this is going to stretch your ability to pronounce words because you don't usually use two parts of this word. The first one uh, that I'm going to teach you comes at the end, and it's that familiar from German and other languages, the sound. So go like, and then get out your handkerchief and wipe off the back of the person in front of you, all right? So we're going to end it with a good, all right? The first part is an R, but you have to roll your R. So go, can you do that? Yeah, you're pitiful. All right. So when you put all that together, it is the word is ruach. All right? So here we go. Ruach. One more time. Ruach. Now, that's an important and powerful Hebrew word, and it occurs 10 times in the 14 verses of this text. It's sometimes translated spirit, as it is in verses 1 and 14. In our verse that we just read, it is translated breath or Wind breath or wind so breath wind and spirit are the important parts of this scripture text and why are they so important because they all represent what we can't see so i'm going to come back to that in a moment but when i was uh when linda and i were in hawaii this past summer we of course visited with our son and daughter-in-law and grandson and our son, I'm hoping he doesn't watch this on Facebook or something because he wouldn't appreciate my saying this, but he's a brilliant oceanographer, all right? So uh, one of his mentors told us when he got his Ph.D., you may not know that no, it, was his, it was at his wedding that he said, you may not know this, but your son is one of the top three or four oceanog- young oceanographers in the whole world. So like, how would a mom or dad know this? So my son's pretty smart, right? So we're on the beach uh, in Kailua this past summer playing with our grandson, and the waves are coming in, you know, and and I said to Phil, my son, I said, when Arlo gets a little bigger and he asks you, Dad, what causes waves? So what's the physical oceanographer going to tell him? And what I thought Phil would say was, you know, Dad, it's kind of complicated. There are so many different factors that come into making waves, and I'm not sure that until he gets a little bit older and can learn a little bit of physics that I'll be able to say anything to him. Philip didn't say anything of that of that nature. What he said was, wind. End of answer. Like, that's the whole thing. So, wind is what causes waves, all right? So, that's one of the things Philip does well. He takes complicated concepts and bring them down to where even dad can understand it, right? So, but think about this. The wind is so um, important because, precisely because you can't see it. What you see is it effect, its effects. And that's where you see wind and breath and spirit are all invisible things. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. So Ezekiel is told in this verse to look away from the, cor- for, th- from the corpses and speak to the four winds. Same word, ruach. And when you speak to the four winds, the wind will come and breath will enter these uh, corpses and they will live again. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So though there's there's a supernatural, invisible force at work, Ezekiel also has a role, a responsibility. He has to speak the word of the Lord to them as he has been commanded. There's often, almost always, a partnership in what God does, even in God's miracles, between what God does and what human beings do. It's a both and. So can you imagine Ezekiel's breathlessness? Don't you think this took the breath out of him when he witnesses this happen before his eyes? Now, this is the end of the vision. And one of the questions I've been asked this week is, what happened to all those people? You know that suddenly came back to life again and that's where i say this has to be a vision because the point is not what happened to the people the point is that ezekiel saw this and what i never noticed before about this text is that the people never saw this vision it was only one man who saw it and it was ezekiel but god did it for him so that he would be inspired and encouraged and emboldened to speak to the people and that's what we get starting in verse 11 he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. So maybe that's actually what the people had been saying to Ezekiel, like we're in exile now. It's over. We're cut off. There's no reason to hope. Why do you talk about hope? There's no reason to. There are times when even the faith of a prophet hangs by a thread, and I wonder, this is not in the text, whether Ezekiel himself needed this vision because he had begun to wonder, can God really bring my people back and make them a living nation again? Everything certainly looked bleak. Did Ezekiel have the stamina and the faith and the energy to proclaim that there was still a future for his people? He needed to see this happen before his eyes. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then, verse 13, you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Death always feels so irreversible. And God brought Ezekiel to this moment to make that specific point. When you see death, you really believe that nothing else can be done. I had a pastoral moment on Friday morning that I don't know I've ever had before. If I did, I don't remember it. I have often been called to someone's home or even to a scene right after someone died. I've even been there in the presence of family when someone took their last breath. What was different on Friday morning is that I was asked to go to the home of Lynn Beckham, she's 92 years old, and to sit beside her and hold her hand and say, your daughter, Leslie, who's 62 years old, your daughter was in an automobile accident last night on I-40 and she didn't survive. Now that's a very humbling moment to be the one that has to speak that word. And the reason this comes to me at this moment is because uh, she cried out, as you would imagine, and then she wept for a while, and then there was silence. And then she turned and looked up at me and she said, tell me it isn't so. That's the cry of everyone who loses someone in death, and I asked Lynn if it was okay to share that story with you, and she said yes, because this is such an important moment for her, but it's a moment that takes you to those times when someone in your life is gone forever, and you want to say, tell me it isn't so. Tell me there's something that can be done to reverse death. that's exactly where Ezekiel is brought in this moment to tell the people yes it looks like not just one death but the death of a nation and God says to Ezekiel can these bones live let me show you they can and then we continue in verse 14 I will put my spirit in you this to the people now and you will live and I will settle you in your own land and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, declares the Lord. So this is the promise of God from Ezekiel chapter 37. What would those words have meant if Ezekiel hadn't first seen the Valley of Dry Bones? We would not be talking about them uh, if Ezekiel, we we would not be talking about the promise of God in this way if it weren't for this vision. This is what makes it so real. And if you don't believe me, like almost the same words are in chapter 36. We didn't even pause there on our way through Ezekiel because it's not so dramatic when God just says words like, I will bring you back to your own land. I will bring you out of the nations. I will put my spirit in you. You will live in the land. You know, we didn't even pause there. But when the Valley of Dry Bones comes, that's a very memorable way. And so God gives it to Ezekiel in a way that we will never forget it and we will remember the lessons of it. So let's take a few moments then and ask, what exactly does Ezekiel 37 mean to you and me? Is Ezekiel 37 a prophecy of modern Israel, that in the 20th century, Israel as a nation would be revived again? There are certainly some who say so. Others say this uh, chapter is a preview of what we call the doctrine of the millennium, which is that after Christ comes back, he will rule on earth, and this is God fulfilling that others say it's the church of jesus christ that we gathered in this room are uh, the answer to the question what does this vision mean that the church is the revitalization of those dry bones one of the surprises to me in studying this text is that we get no help at all from the new testament wouldn't you think with a story as cool as this like if i were giving jesus preaching lessons sorry don't shoot me for saying that all right I would go like, Jesus, there were some great times when you could have brought in the valley of dry bones. It's a really cool story. Paul, when you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, wouldn't you bring in the valley of dry bones? Nowhere in the New Testament is this story referred to in any direct way. Therefore, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what exactly does this mean and what does it mean to us? Whatever your view of any of those specific ideas, the good news is I don't need to dissuade you from them. My goal in studying Ezekiel is to draw our attention higher. So every week I've been asking, what does this teach us about God? So what do we learn from Ezekiel 37 about the character and nature of God? This God is our God, is our overall banner for these sermons. And I would suggest to you three brief lessons, and they are the lessons of wind and breath, and spirit, all of which are in this passage. So first is the lesson of the wind. Never limit what God can do based on what you can see. Never limit what God can do based on what you can see. So if you're imagining how God can turn a mess into something good, You can't just look around at what's in front of you. So can God take a broken, shattered relationship? Can he take a financial ruin and mess? Can God take a life that has wandered far off the path and is in danger of self-destruction? Can God do anything with that? Never limit what God can do based on what you can see. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus In John chapter 3 and he said you must be born again and Nicodemus says like how is that possible he's limiting God by what he can see and Jesus answers with the wind analogy the wind blows where it wills and you hear it sound but you don't see wind you only see the effects of the wind that's how the Holy Spirit works so never in whatever you're dealing with right now never limit what God can do based on what you can see Second lesson is the lesson of breath. Never, ever believe that death has the last word. Death never has the last word. The death of Israel didn't have the last word. The death of you will not have the last word. The death of your loved one never has the last word. The death of Lynn Beckham's daughter, Leslie, doesn't have the last word, and that's where we had to go on Friday, as we talked about this and prayed about it, as Pastor Laurie came over and we ministered to the family, this does not have the last word, and we hold on to that promise for those who die in the Lord. So this is also a consistent theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation. There's progress along the way about death and resurrection, but there's also consistency. So the Apostle Paul ends up saying, uh, uh, laughing in the face of death, where, oh death, is your sting? It doesn't have the last word. And he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when the Lord God used this same two-step process that Ezekiel witnessed in the valley. And first he formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Why? Because we're always to remember that God is the one who holds the breath of life. As long as we live, it's because of God. And when we die, death does not have the last word, ever, never. And then finally, God's promise is direct and personal accessibility. This is the lesson of the Spirit. So the Bible uses the word promise much more sparingly than we do. I titled my sermon today, The Promise of God. So we tend to use the word promise, even in relation to God, as this is my favorite Bible verse, and therefore it's God's promise. Or this is a word God spoke into my mind and gave me a direction, and he promised. I'm going to tell you the Bible never uses the word promise in those ways. The Bible uses the word promise in big picture ways of God's larger plan. That's a promise you can hang your hat on. And one of the great promises of the Bible that is in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New is the promise of the Holy Spirit. I think when God told the prophets, like Ezekiel, the Spirit is going to come and even said to them, and he will live in you, I'm not sure they had any clue what that might look like. When the Spirit of God came over people in the Old Testament, more often than not, it was kind of weird. Like Samson is one of the great examples of the Holy Spirit coming on a human being. And Samson is then emboldened to kill a lion or pull down, you know, pillars so that a roof would fall in. And you're going like, this Spirit's going to live inside of me? I don't think I want to be that destructive. So what did it mean to them that this invisible force of God would come and live inside of his people? And Jesus reframes all of that. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's a he, it's a person. We know him as the third person of the Trinity. He, the Holy Spirit, will be in you and will be with you. This is the promise fulfilled from Ezekiel chapter 37. Jesus doesn't have to connect the dots. We can. Like, this is when it happens. And I love how Jesus, when he's teaching about prayer, says to his disciples, first of all, be persistent, never give up, keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking. Tells a great story about that, a parable And then he says, and when you keep praying, you can know that God will give, and you want him to say, whatever you asked for in your prayer that you kept praying. And instead, Jesus has this amazing turn in his teaching where he says, and when you keep praying, God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So, you know, it's not that God will do what we want in the way that we want, but the one promise that I can hold on to from the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, is that whether we need direction or encouragement or a kick in the rear or whether we just need patience, whenever we ask for the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whenever you ask, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he will come to you. This is the promise of God. Let us pray. Our Father, the Word of God is rich and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. And it keeps grounding us back to who we are and whose we are. And so we thank you for your promise, which is always true and always reliable, that you, in the midst of whatever we face, are the one who brings comfort and strength and joy and peace. And Father, today I know there are many families who in various ways are hurting, but I especially pray for our dear sister Lynn Beckham, for her husband Jim, for Leslie's husband David, and their children Megan and Clay, and for an entire extended family who just need your arms wrapped around them. Holy Spirit, would you come and be their comfort and their strength and their hope today. And for all in this room who are wrestling with perhaps some version of feeling distant from you or wondering how you're going to right all the wrongs in the world that we see all around us, even in Israel, as we've talked about that place today, we trust in you. We look to you. We find our strength and our hope in the Holy Spirit. And we pray as Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven,